Welcome everybody to another live streaming meeting on YouTube and Facebook. The title of this one is called How, When, and Why the LDS Churches Were Condemned. And so all of the restoration branches that go back to the origins of 1830, um, Joseph Smith and those people and those teachings, um, all of them, all of the branches had, had a similar fate because they all go back to this point in time um, that we're going to explore, which is around the condemnation. And many people already know the DNC 84 quote, which we'll go over later on, um, that talks about the condemnation of the church. Um, we know that President Benson has mentioned it here and there, but we're going to take those two references there and we're going to expand them to about 20 or 25 different references. So you have some, a lot of color commentary about how, when, and why all of this stuff happened. And I'm going to lay it out to you with, you know, church history quotes and scriptures best I can. I'm a firm believer in letting the source material tell the story as much as possible. That being said, my current understanding of the, the situation is always growing. And if I say something wrong, if I'm missing something, or if there's something that I said erroneously, um, no problem. Just let me know in the comments. Let the whole community know what else there is to help answer this question, because it's on a lot of people's minds right now. Um, they're seeing discrepancies between the church today, whatever church that would be from the restoration branches and the church back then. And they're seeing that there's, there's a lot of differences. And so um, let us know in the comments how we're doing, what you think. If there's additional sources, additional points to make, just light them up in the comments. Um, that being said, let's go ahead and dive in. Okay, so this is a timeline that is going to be brought back all throughout the presentation tonight. We're going to keep referring to it because we're going to keep stacking events on this timeline to show you exactly what happened and when as the church progressed from 1830, its founding you know, year, all the way up until the death of Joseph Smith and beyond. So this is something that you'll all be familiar with by the end of the night. And we're going to start out with April 6th, 1830. The church is um, it's founded in New York. That was when the Church of Christ was founded, April 1830. And we're going to move from there forward. And you'll see that just a few months later, in July 1830, is really where the story starts. Now, some of the quotes even go back to 1829, but I'll get to those in a minute, towards the end of it. All right, so here we are again, July 1830 couple months after the church was founded. Okay, so Doctrine and Covenants, section 24, verses 5 through 6. And thou shalt continue calling upon God in my name and writing the things which shall be given thee by the Comforter. This is talking to Joseph, obviously. And expounding all scriptures unto the church. And it shall be given thee in the very moment what thou shalt speak and write, and they shall hear it. Listen up. Or I will send unto them a cursing instead of a blessing. Second Nephi 28 verse 28 in the Book of Mormon. Remember, he's telling these people in DNC 24, the scripture we just read, that things by the comforter of the Holy Ghost will be given. And in that very moment, they need to hear these things by the power of the Spirit or they will receive a cursing instead of a blessing. So 2 Nephi 28, 28, we know this one. Cursed is he, there's that language again. Cursed is he that putteth his trust in man or maketh flesh his arm 
or shall hearken unto the precepts of men, save their precepts shall be given by the power of the Holy Ghost. Okay, these two scriptures, I believe, are teeing up the atmosphere in the 1830s when this church just barely was founded, where Jesus is saying through Joseph, these people need to listen and hearken to every word I speak to them through the power of the Holy Ghost or a cursing will come. So now we go back to this timeline. We see another event plopped down on the timeline, January, 1831, nine months after the founding. Let's see. This is Doctrine and Covenants, section 38. Here we go. DNC 38, 31 through 32. This is January, 1831. And that ye might escape the power of the enemy and be gathered unto me, a righteous people without spot and blameless. Wherefore, for this cause, I gave unto you the commandment that you should go to the Ohio. And there I will give unto you my law. And there you shall be endowed with power from on high. And so January, they're preparing to receive the law of the Lord, the terrestrial law, the law of Zion for his people so that they can be a righteous people without spot and blameless. This is the law that will make people without spot and blameless before the Lord. Okay. That was January 1831. And now we have the law given in February of 1831. So now our next warning comes that same exact month that this law was given. February 1831, out of the Doctrine and Covenants, or Book of Commandments, this is in both of them. Doctrine and Covenants 41 says, starting in verse 1, Hearken and hear, O ye my people, saith the Lord and your God, ye whom I delight to bless with the greatest of all blessings, ye that hear me, and ye that hear me not, will I curse, that have professed my name with the heaviest of all cursings. The words of the Lord. Skip down to verse 5 in DNC 41. And he that receiveth my law and doeth it, the same is my disciple. You understand? To be a disciple, and to be of his church, you have to receive his law and live his commandments. He that received my law and doeth it, the same is my disciple. And he that saith he receiveth it and doeth it not, remember that, if you say you receive the law, but you don't do it, DNC 84, that's condemnation coming, right? It, he that saith he receiveth it and doeth it not, the same is not my disciple, and shall be cast out from among you. So the Lord is saying, your people need to be one in this law, or you need to get rid of the trouble, or else you'll be cursed. Okay, remember, he that hear me not will I curse, the heaviest of all cursings. Verse 6. For it is not meet that the things which belong to the children of the kingdom should be given to them that are not worthy. Where have you heard that before? Third Nephi, Jesus teaching the people at Bountiful. He tells his disciples, don't you dare give some of these things to um, those that are unworthy. You know, And so those who are worthy are those who've had the remission of sins. They've, they've communed with God to some degree through the Holy Spirit. And their sins are forgiven them. And that can happen multiple times through someone's life. How many times did Joseph have his sins forgiven in the Doctrine and Covenants, right? 
But those are the types of people that this is meant for, this law of Zion. Now remember, February 1831, the next section in DNC 42, they're going to receive the law of Zion. Doctrine and Covenants 42. This is verses 59 through 61. When I refresh that, that works a little better. Let me get this whole thing for you. Okay, here we are. DNC 42, 59 through 61. Thou shalt take the things which thou hast received, which have been given unto thee in my scriptures for a law, and to be my law to govern my church. And he that doeth according to these things shall be saved. And he that doeth them not shall be damned, if he so continue. If thou shalt ask, thou shalt receive revelation upon revelation, knowledge upon knowledge, that thou mayest know the mysteries and peaceable things, or peaceable things of the kingdom, things from the spirit, right? That which bringeth joy, that which bringeth life eternal. Peaceable things, joy, that's through the spirit, the first comforter, receiving the Holy Ghost. And that which bringeth life eternal, eventually, um, that's the fullness of salvation. Okay, so you're starting to see the problem here? Um, right now, we are just barely into a new law given by the Lord. And here we have another one. August of 1831. So let's talk about this, what happened here. This is Doctrine and Covenants section 63, verses 61 through 64. Wherefore, let all men, who? All men. That includes everybody? Yeah. Wherefore, let all men beware how they take my name in their lips. 62. For behold, verily I say that there are, that many there be who are under this condemnation. So people are already under this condemnation among the saints in August 1831. Many there be who are under this condemnation, who use the name of the Lord and use it in vain, having not authority. Wherefore, let the church repent of their sins and I, the Lord, will own them. They'll become his church. He'll put his name on them. Let it stay there. Otherwise, if they don't repent of their sins, they shall be cut off. In verse 64 of DNC 63, it says, Remember that that which cometh from above is sacred and must be spoken with care and by constraint of the Spirit. And in this, there is no condemnation. You guys starting to see the pieces here through the DNC? Sounds like the Lord wants us to listen to all of his commandments and be faithful. And if we screw up, he wants you to repent and return unto him speedily. You don't have to be perfect, but you do have to be repentant to be called his church. That's DNC section 10. Um, all right. 64 again. Remember that that which cometh from above is sacred and must be spoken with care and by constraint of the spirit. And in this, there is no condemnation. And ye receive the spirit through prayer. Wherefore, without this, there remaineth condemnation. So he's teaching these Latter-day Saints that, hey, you need to get the Spirit through prayer and repentance. You need to come unto me and call upon me in mighty prayer and be cleansed from your sins, and I will own you. I will call you my church. 
right? Um, but if you don't, guess what? There's condemnation. And right now in the church, there are many in August 1831, it says many, who are under this condemnation. They're not repentant. They have not received the Spirit. They're not living the doctrine of Christ faithfully to the best of their abilities. Okay. So what were these sins? And we're going to go back up a couple of verses and see what these sins were. I give commandments and many have turned away from my commandments and have not kept them. There were among you adulterers and adulteresses, some of whom have turned away from you and others remain with you that hereafter shall be revealed. Do you remember earlier, a couple scriptures ago, the Lord said, if there's people that are among you that are not repentant, you're supposed to cast them out. They're not to remain among you in your group. And so this is starting to, to boil over and the Lord is giving several warnings here. In verse 15 of DNC 63, but let such beware and repent speedily. See, there's always mercy. Just, just listen and repent and they can get back. Repent speedily, lest judgments shall come upon them as a snare and their folly shall be made manifest and their works shall follow them in the eyes of the people. Verse 17, wherefore I, the Lord have said that the fearful and the unbelieving and all liars and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie and the whoremonger and the sorcerer shall have their part in that lake, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Okay, so there we have DNC 63, another warning. Oh, one more verse in verse 19, skip down. And now behold, I the Lord say unto you that ye are not justified because these things are among you. He's talking to the church here. Okay, let's go to the next one. I have animations, but since this thing is so choppy, I'm just going to refresh the page and show you. The next one on the timeline is November 1831. We're at a year and a half after this church was founded. November 1831. Okay, here we go. DNC section one, the Lord's preface to the book of commandments, right? In verse 27 is November 1831. And inasmuch as they sinned, they might be chastened, that they might repent. And inasmuch as they were humble, they might be made strong and blessed from on high and receive knowledge from time to time. And after receiving the record of the Nephites, yea, even my servant Joseph Smith Jr. might have power to translate through the mercy of God by the power of God, the Book of Mormon. And also those to whom these commandments were given might have power to lay the foundation of this church. Which church? The Church of Christ. And bring it forth out of obscurity and out of darkness. The only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth, with which I, the Lord, am well pleased, speaking unto the church collectively, but not individually. So individual members in this church, he's not well pleased with. But the church collectively, that is the church of Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's continue. Continue on in verse 31. For I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Remember what we're talking about? You have to obey all of the commandments. Nevertheless, he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven. And he that repents not from him shall be taken even the light which he has received. And we're starting to see a pattern. If the Lord gives you something, 
you treat it lightly, he takes it back from you and he'll cut you off from it. And so remember this pattern. This is how the Lord works. He that repents not from him shall be taken even the light which he has received. And in Alma 12, it suggests that those mysteries and that light can be stripped away from you systematically until you know nothing concerning the mysteries. And so if something happened this long ago, 190 years ago or so, think about how much the truth can be distorted and light, which they once received, could have been taken away over all those years. And then the Lord says, for my spirit shall not always strive with man, said the Lord of hosts. Um, sometimes there's a notion that, hey, you know, since the restoration until Jesus comes again in the millennium, the kingdom of God will never be torn down. It's going to stay here forever. It's going to last through whatever tribulations come. No, baloney. The Lord actually says that I will take away light that you've received if you don't repent and do the commandments that I, the Lord, have given you. Right? Keep in mind that DNC 84, the famous scripture about the condemnation. Why? Because they treated lightly the things that they had received. Remember? In prior prior times, you treated these things lightly. I'm showing you three or four examples of what that entails. Okay. So now, um, let's go on the timeline here. September 1832, this is Doctrine and Covenants section 84. This is the popular one about condemnation. All right, so DNC 84, September 1832. And your minds in times past have been darkened because of unbelief, because you have treated lightly the things that you have received. Pattern, get it? Which vanity and unbelief have brought the whole church under condemnation. And this condemnation resteth upon the children of Zion, even all. And they shall remain under this condemnation until they repent and remember the new covenant, even the Book of Mormon and the former commandments, which I have given them not only to say, but to also do according to that which I have written. He's referring to the written scriptures that he was given, that the saints were given through the Lord. And so it's important that we do things with this knowledge that we receive from the Lord. Um, and this is the only way for us to break through out of a telestial world and to prepare ourselves to receive the spirit, be baptized of fire, and to become somebody of his church. Um, so the Lord is going to have some mercy on some if they repent. Okay, back to the timeline. So they were condemned in this year, 1832. In March, 1833 is our next one. Here we go. DNC section 90, verses 3 through 5, March 8th, 1833. Verily I say unto you, the keys of this kingdom shall never be taken from you, talking to Joseph Smith, while thou art in the world, neither in the world to come. Nevertheless, through you shall the oracles be given to another, yea, even unto the church. And they who receive the oracles of God, let them beware how they hold them, lest they are accounted as a light thing and are brought under condemnation thereby and stumble and fall when the storms descend, not if, when the storms descend and the winds blow and the rains descend and beat upon their house. There's a great tumultuous storm 
that comes upon the house of those who are disobedient to the Lord's law once they've received it. Okay, so we're going to read a few more verses from DNC 90. Again, March 1833. I'll make this bigger for you. It says, And behold, I say unto you that your brethren in Zion began to repent, and the angels rejoice over them. Nevertheless, I am not pleased. I am not well pleased with many things. And I am not well pleased with my servant William McClellan, neither my servant Sidney Gilbert, and the bishop also, and others have many things to repent of. But verily I say unto you that I, the Lord, will contend with Zion and plead with her strong ones. Strength of the Lord's house. I will contend with Zion and plead with her strong ones and chasten her until she overcomes and is clean before me. Okay. Even though the Lord is not well pleased with many things, his strategy is to teach them a lesson, to let them be chastened. When the storms descend upon them and beat upon them, he's going to let Zion be chastened. He's going to let it fall because of the people's own disobedience with the hopes that after the chastening, and chastening her until she overcomes and is clean before me. That's the Lord's intention to get all of us clean and to establish Zion. Okay, so there's that thing about the oracles of God. Let me get them all on screen here. Okay, and I'm going to keep an eye on how clear that is. Okay, good. DNC 90, 3 through 5. Nevertheless, through you shall the oracles be given. And skipping down to 5. All they who receive the oracles of God, let them beware how they hold them, lest they are counted as a light thing and the rod under condemnation. What the heck are oracles, right? Why don't we ask... Let's see. So, through you shall the oracles be given, the Lord says. Speaking of Joseph Smith. He also says in DNC 5, as a cross-reference, compare those two blue sections there, right? Some of these things that were given to Joseph Smith in verse 9 of DNC 5, it says, For wise purpose in me, and shall be made known unto future generations. Isn't that interesting? So there's some things the Lord gave Joseph Smith that were for, free, for future generations to be made known and revealed. Verse 10, But this generation, these guys right here, 1829, this generation, shall have my word through you, Joseph Smith, right? All right, so let's answer the question of what are oracles? Because you read through some of the manuals and stuff like that, some of the teachings of these modern LDS churches, and they will often say that oracles means that the keys were passed on. The oracles were given to the church, you know, and he received them first and then he passed them on. Uh, no, not even close. So two quotes from Joseph Smith here describing what oracles are. And I, and I guess he would know, right? So the first quote, April 1843, he says, some start on the revelations to come. So the subject of this paragraph is the revelations to come. This is the place that is appointed for the oracles of God to be revealed. Are keys a revelation? Are keys revealed? No, they're not. Um, revelations are revealed. Oracles are revealed. Another quote, he says, men in previous generations have with polluted hands and corrupt hearts taken 
from the sacred oracles many precious items which were plain of comprehension. How do you take a priesthood key and break it in half and steal some of it and make it confusing? You don't. You don't. He's talking about the revelations of God here. The oracles are the revelations that were written, the law of God, the stone tablets, so to speak, but for our day. So this is what Joseph Smith received. Um, and this is what brings people under condemnation, is if they take the oracles of God lightly and esteem them as a light thing, condemnation follows. I think we made that point a lot. Okay. There's that new thing in the timeline. April 1834. We are now um, four years after the establishment of the church. And the next one, the next warning, see these little yellow exclamation points? Those are all the warnings. Two through five. Okay, let me get this all up. And DNC 104, two through five, April 23rd, 1834 says, with promise immutable and unchangeable, that inasmuch as those who command, whom I commanded were faithful, they should be blessed with a multiplicity of blessings. But inasmuch as they were not faithful, they were nigh unto cursing. What does nigh mean? It means near. Cursing is pretty close at hand. Inasmuch as they were not faithful, they were nigh unto cursing. Therefore, inasmuch as some of my servants, this is important because the Lord is saying my church, you know, collectively but not individually, is under this condemnation. He's, he's not well pleased with them. Um, he's saying here that inasmuch as some of my servants have not kept the commandment, but have broken the covenant through covetousness and with feigned words. It's feigned words, fake words, insincerity. You say you're going to do something, you have a form of godliness, but you deny the power thereof, or you're a hypocrite. You take upon yourself the name of the Lord, but you don't fulfill his commandments. Um, that's who he's talking about here. But he says some of them have not kept the commandment, not all. With feigned words, I have cursed them with a very sore and grievous curse. Verse 5 of section 104. For I, the Lord, have decreed in my heart that inasmuch as any man belonging to the order shall be found a transgressor, or in other words, shall break the covenant with which you are bound, he shall be cursed in this life and shall be trodden down by whom I will. Okay, so the next thing we're going to cover is that in this timeline, we get to 1834 in April, April 23rd, 1834. The Lord is basically saying, you are nigh unto cursing. Like you are, you are so close. Um, and so the morning and evening star on May 3rd, 1834, 10 days after that prior revelation, it said nigh unto cursing. It reads, under the head communicated on the last page of this number will be seen the minutes of a conference held by the elders of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. In this place, on the third of this month, it is now more than four years since this church was organized in these last days. And though the, and through the, though the conferences have always shown by their minutes that they took no other name than the name of Christ. He's basically saying for four years, this thing has been known as the Church of Christ. No other name. 
Now he's calling it the Church of the Latter-day Saints in this edition of the Evening and Morning Star. I'll show you why in a minute. Because starting on this date, May 3rd, 1834, Kirtland, Ohio, May 3rd, 1834. These are minutes of a conference of the elders of the Church of Christ, right? Which church was organized in the township of Fayette, Seneca County, New York, on the 6th of April, A.D. 1830. The conference came to order, and Joseph Smith, Jr. was chosen moderator. He's here. He's in charge of this meeting. He's helping lead it. And Frederick G. Williams and Oliver Cowdery were appointed clerks. After prayer and the conference proceeded to discuss the subject of names and appellations when a motion was made by Sidney Rigdon and seconded by Newell K. Whitney that this church be known hereafter by the name the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Jesus removed his name from his church on May 3rd, 1834, officially. Continuing the quote, appropriate remarks were delivered by some of the members. There were discussions around this name change. I don't know what was said. I wish we had the minutes in more full, but we know that Joseph was there. Frederick Williams was there. Oliver Cowdery was there. Joseph was the moderator. He's very well, well aware of what's happening here. Sidney Rigdon is there. Newell K. Whitney is there. Appropriate marks were delivered by some of the members, after which the motion, motion was put by the moderator, Joseph Smith Jr., and passed by unanimous voice. Every single person in the, that conference of the elders unanimously voted that the Church of Christ would become the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And you have to ask yourselves, why were all of them unanimously on board with this and understood it well enough to, to support it when it was being discussed by some of the members? The next place we're going to go is to 3rd Nephi 27. And Stingray... You know, Dustin Grady last night talked about this um, in his presentation. Um, Does God allow a prophet to lead his people astray? So in 3 Nephi 27, verses 5, 7, and 8, have they, not, have they not read the scriptures which say you must take upon you the name of Christ, which is my name? For by his, this name shall you be called at the last day. Therefore, whatsoever you shall do, you shall do it in my name. Therefore, ye shall call the church in my name. And ye shall call upon the Father in my name that he will bless the church for my sake. And how be it my church, save it be called in my name? These are the words of Jesus. For if a church be called in Moses' name, then it be Moses' church. Or if it be is called in the name of a man, then it be a church of a man. But if it be called in my name, then it is my church if it so be that they are built upon my gospel. Who is he talking about here? Who is he giving these instructions to? The 2,500 with the disciples, remember? Third Nephi. This is his audience. And he's telling these people that this is the name of the church because you have received my law and you're living it. You're about to have a Zionic order among you, right? And so the church of Christ was the name of Christ's church as the Latter-day Saints received the law of Zion in DNC 42 until they started, you know, messing around. They had problems with obedience and faithfulness. There were some people faking it and, you know, being mischievous, mischievous and, and claiming authority when they didn't have it. They took upon themselves the name of the Lord and yet their works didn't match up with that. And they weren't repentant of those works. And so that's different than these Nephites here. 
So, but the main point here is that it has to be named after Christ in order to be called his church. And so when he says that, the, you know, if it's named after Moses, this church, then it's Moses' church. Well, what can we say about a church that's named after the Latter-day Saints? Whose church is that? That's the Latter-day Saints' church, right? It's not his. There's no name on it. Um, if it's so be that they're built upon the gospel. Okay, so that's April 1834. So the next thing we're seeing on the timeline here is in May 1834, there's a condemnation finalized. It becomes a curse where the Lord removes his name from the church and they become the Church of the Latter-day Saints, right? Okay. So the next thing is we're going to take a look at the Book of Mormon. What were the Lord's people? What was Christ's church always called in the Book of Mormon? In Moroni 6, verse 4, it says, And after they had been received unto baptism, and were wrought upon and cleansed by the power of the Holy Ghost, they were numbered among the people of the church of Christ. Third Nephi 26, it came to pass that they did all things as Jesus had commanded them, including in their church properly. And they who were baptized in the name of Jesus were called, you guessed it, the church of Christ, right? Mosiah 18, verse 17, and they were called the church of God or the church of Christ from that time forward. Anybody baptized by the power and authority of God was added to that church. It's a requisite. Fourth Nephi chapter one. Now this is where the Zion society is taking off and the law of Zion is being lived faithfully. Um, and behold, the disciples of Jesus had formed a church of Christ in all the lands round about. A church of Christ versus the church of Christ. You got to ask yourselves, could there be many churches of Christ that are all unified, different congregations perhaps, in different areas of the land. I mean, if they're built upon the gospel, the doctrine of Christ, and these people are repentant and coming unto him through baptism, full baptism, by water and the spirit, they're a member of his church. And they're numbered among them. <laughs> okay. Maybe we have one more scripture on this one. Third Nephi 28, verse 23. And it came to pass that thus they, the disciples of Jesus, did go forth among all the people of Nephi and did preach the gospel of Christ unto all people upon the face of the land. And they were converted unto the Lord. People have to have a conversion experience with the Lord. And they were unified into the church of Christ. Here you have five examples. And there's probably more. I, I just stopped because I ran out of room on the slide, you know, so... Um, here you have five examples of what the church should be called, and you have Jesus himself teaching the importance of the name of that. Um, now I'm going to try to breeze through a little bit of this. Because um, Dustin Grady actually did an article about the history of the LDS church name changes. And he goes in for like an hour and a half, maybe two hours, of tons of detail through church history, um, original source material, and even some scriptures to back it up. And he's going to expound on this principle a lot. But I'm only illustrating it so that the people that are new to this idea can see how pervasive this is, how important it is to be named the Church of Christ. In the Book of Mormon, that's what Christ's church was called, the, you know, the Church of Christ. 
And so this name change to the Church of the Latter-day Saints is very serious business. The Lord is essentially removing his name from the LDS churches. They're not allowed to be called the Church of Christ anymore because they rejected through their negligence um, living his law. And he's not going to take them upon himself if they don't live that law. So um, in DNC 20, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight mentions of the Church of Christ. Right? Um, and Joseph Smith is on record of saying, that quote at the bottom is kind of small, but I'll read it. We obtained of him, Jesus Christ, the following, which is this revelation, DNC 20, um, by the spirit of prophecy and revelation, which not only gave us much information, but also pointed out to us the precise day upon which, according to his will and commandment, we should proceed to organize his church once more here upon the earth. Joseph Smith understood that this was the same church being established that was among the Nephites and the Lamanites in the record that he had just spent months translating and publishing, right? And so he understands that this is a big deal. This higher law, this New Testament, um, is being given to him again in the latter days so that he can lay the foundation of Zion with this law. Okay, let me fast forward a little bit. Next slide. Okay, I'm going to close out a couple of things that might be slowing me down a little bit. Excuse me. Okay, just a moment. All right, that should help me speed up my computer a little bit. Okay, so let's go to the next slide. Okay, I'm just going to show you two slides here that show that the name of the Church of Christ was prevalent everywhere, right? You have the Book of Commandments right there, the title page, Church of Christ. Over here, the Articles and Covenants of the Church of Christ, Church of Christ, Rise and Progress of the Church of Christ. And now, afterwards, what do we see? So we see the, the Church of the Latter-day Saints from 1834 May onward. In the hymn book there on the right, from compiled by Emma Smith, the first hymn book, Church of the Latter-day Saints, it says. Um, the opening title page of the Lectures on Faith said the Church of the Latter-day Saints. The Kirtland Temple had it on there. Um, and of course, like we already showed you, the uh, Church of Latter-day Saints, the, the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, that newest edition of, of the Book of Commandments, the, the new and latest one has the name change right there on the title page. Okay, so back to the timeline. Let's try to make sense of this. So you have timeline up until this point. You're starting to see some, some warnings. Now our next one, we're going to show green check marks for confirmations of this condemnation, where it's reiterated that, yep, that's what happened. So we're going to unfold some of those that happened after this. The first one is in December 1834. All right, so we're going to talk about Oliver Cowdery's quote, December 5th, 1834. So about, I don't know, six months after the, the name change in May. Verily, condemnation resteth upon you. This is a revelation to Joseph Smith that Oliver Cowdery wrote. It's in his own handwriting. Verily, condemnation resteth upon you. There you have another witness, right? Who are appointed to lead my church and to be saviors of men, and also upon the church, 
and there must needs be a repentance and a reformation among you in all things. Lord is saying, you, you have to repent and you've got to start over. You have to be reformed. Like we're going to, we're going to have to try this again one day, right? So let's talk about the idea of this reformation among you. Okay. We're going to go back in time. Sorry. I tried to make, make this like linear if I could, but it didn't always make sense. So we're going to go back to 1829 and we're going to talk about two verses that used to be in the book of commandments, section four, that from 1835 onward, these two verses were taken out. The original book of commandments says in section four, verses five and six. And thus, if the people of this generation harden not their hearts, I will work a reformation among them. So what is the Lord saying a reformation is? Now, this is 1829. This is before the church was started. If they don't harden their hearts, this people, this generation, he's speaking right now to these people in 1829, I will do a reformation among them. So he's given us a hint of what a reformation actually is. It's a new dispensation, right? I will work a reformation among them. And I will put down all lyings and deceivings and priestcrafts and envyings and strifes and idolatries and sorceries and all manner of iniquities. And I will establish my church. Isn't that interesting though? He says, before I can establish my church again with a reformation, I've got to put down all of this crap, all of these envying, strifes, priestcrafts, lying, cheating, idolatries, sorceries, all manner of iniquities. And remember, we talked about this. Condemnation comes from not obeying all the law and all of the, the commandments of God, right? Um, in fact, well, we'll talk about this at the end, maybe in the Q&A section, how in JST Genesis 14, it talks about, no, in JST Genesis 9, excuse me, how it talks about when men will obey all of my commandments. What does he say? Men look up. Heavens look down, the city of Enoch will return, and there will be Zion once again, right? Um, in verse 6, Book of Commandments 4, 5 through 6. All right, so at the end of verse 5, before we go on, and I will establish my church like unto the church which was taught by my disciples in the days of old. He said, he said that Book of Mormon church, remember that? That's what's coming back. That New Testament church with, with Peter and those guys, James, John, Paul, that's what's coming back as a reformation. And now in verse six, if this generation do harden their hearts against my word, guess what? Behold, I will deliver them up unto Satan. For he reigneth and hath much power at this time, for he hath got great hold upon the hearts of the people of this generation and not far from the iniquities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do they come at this time? And behold, the sword of justice hangeth over their heads. And if they persist in the hardness of their hearts, there's that, if they don't repent, if they persist in the hardness of their hearts, the time cometh that it must fall upon them. The sword of justice, that is. So this condemnation and this curse that fell upon the saints was just. It was fair. It may sound harsh, but the Lord gave. How many warnings did I show you on this timeline? At least like seven or eight, right? These people were warned sufficiently. And not to mention, we don't have a lot of the church history sermons. You know, all the way up until 1838, a lot of those sermons were lost or destroyed or something, you know. Brother Whitmer was the church historian, but 
Um, we don't have a lot of that stuff prior to 1838. I would imagine there were lots of sermons about the doctrine of Christ. I would imagine Joseph and other leaders trying to get these people to understand um, that this condemnation thing is a very, very serious deal. And that was in the 1833 Book of Commandments, like I said. That was removed in 1835 onward. Let's talk a little bit more about our reformation among you and what this means. Okay, so we have William Marks making a statement here. You guys remember William Marks? So he was a Nauvoo stake president. And Nauvoo was, um, um, yeah, so he worked really closely with Joseph Smith. Um, he did a lot of the hearings, a lot of the trials, a lot of the excommunications, a lot of the administrative stuff. And, uh, you know, according to Joseph Smith, um, stake presidents were ranked below the first presidency, so to speak, back then. Um, they were, it went from like president of the church, man supposed to be likened to Moses, right? Then they're his counselors, the first presidency. And then right after that, you have stake presidents in Zion was the next in authority for priesthood. So William Marks, a very high ranking official, pretty good guy. Um, however, he said in 1859, he reflected on this idea of a reformation among you. He said, quote, I had very good opportunity to know the affairs of the church. And my convictions at that time were that the church in a great measure had departed from the true, or excuse me, from the pure principles and doctrines of Jesus Christ. It felt much troubled in mind. I felt much troubled in mind about the condition of the church. I prayed earnestly to my heavenly father who showed me to show me something in regard to this when I was wrapped in vision and it was shown me by the spirit that the tops or branches had overcome the root in sin and wickedness. And the only way to cleanse and purify it was to disorganize it. Let it fall. Disorganize it. And in due time, the Lord would reorganize it again. Remember the promise and the prophecy from the Lord was, hey, if you guys don't harden your hearts, you're good. But if you do harden your hearts, I will have to do a reformation among you. If you I mean, other, other way around. If you don't harden your hearts, I will work a reformation among you. This language, we're going to compare to Jacob 5. And uh, Dustin um, commented on this a little bit last night. Sorry if there's a little bit of overlap. But he and I worked together to make sure that both of our lessons would speak to each other and cover different aspects, but there is a little bit of, of overlap in that Venn diagram. So look at these color-coded areas and compare them. Jacob 5 talks about the roots are good. William Marks was saying the pure principles and doctrines of Jesus Christ were good, but the church had strayed from them, right? Um, similarly, in Jacob 5, the roots were good, but the branches started bringing forth some pretty awkward fruit, right? Some weird stuff. Um, in the blue section, we have the wild branches have grown and overrun the roots thereof. And because that the wild branches have overcome the roots thereof, Jacob says, or he's recounting Zenus. And then William Mark said, what? The top or branches had overcome the root. You start to see the parallels here. And what did they overcome them in? In sin and wickedness. Now, how did they overcome them in Jacob 5? It hath brought forth much evil fruit. Well, that's sin and wickedness. And because that it hath brought forth so much evil fruit, thou beholdest that it beginneth to perish. 
and it will soon become ripened, that it may be cast into the fire, except we should do something for it to preserve it. Unless we do a reformation. So when Jacob is setting the stage here, um, the servant says, hey, it didn't work. There was weird fruit. We tried this grafting thing. It didn't work. There's still some strange fruit. Lord, don't burn the vineyard yet. I got an idea. Let's go down one more time and let's do a reformation of it. Let's gather out the strength of the Lord's house, right? Let's bring some servants. Let's get some help here from heaven. You know, let's have some people come back down to the earth and, and help us with this stuff. And so here you have um, what the reformation symbolizes in a nutshell. Okay, back to the timeline. Okay, let's get a clear picture on the timeline here. We are now in April of 1836, so fast forward a couple of years, right? The name of the church was changed. The Lord has, has promised that there's going to be a reformation if they're faithful at some future time. We don't know when. Um, so in April 1836, this is when the Kirtland Temple was going to be dedicated. And let's read what Joseph Smith says about that. So section 109 in DNC um, verses 78 through 79, and I'm going to throw in 72 and 73 as, as, a, as a preface to this. Remember all thy church, O Lord. Now, this is a prayer. The dedicatory prayer is, um, it's a prayer. It's a revelatory prayer that Joseph gave. And he's telling the Lord, remember all thy church, O Lord, with their families and all their immediate connections and with their sick and their afflicted ones, with all the poor and the meek of the earth, that the kingdom which thou hast set up without hands may become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. That thy church may become, let's see, that thy church may come forth out of the wilderness of darkness. Pay attention to that phrase. That thy church can come out of the wilderness of darkness. He's saying that the church right now is in a wilderness of darkness. Okay? that thy church may come forth out of the wilderness of darkness and shine forth fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. Here's a plead. O oh, hear, O oh, hear, O oh, hear us, O oh, Lord, and answer these petitions, and accept the dedication of this house unto thee, the work of our hands which we have built unto thy name. Verse 79. And also this church. What about the church? He's saying, accept the dedication of this house and also accept this church to put upon it thy name and help us by the power of thy spirit that we may mingle our voices with those bright shining seraphs around thy throne with acclamations of praise singing Hosanna to God and the Lamb. Okay. DNC 109 is just one more a green check mark. This is one more proof positive to the theory that the LDS churches were condemned and then cursed when he took the name off of it. And even years later, Joseph Smith is begging the Lord, please put your name back on this people. Help us to mingle with heaven once again, right? Remember our families and our sick ones and our loved ones and our extensions, our connections. Um, Lord, hear our petitions. Put your name back on this church, please. He's begging right? So we're going to go back. Remember that red line here. 
that thy church may come forth out of the wilderness of darkness. This is Joseph Smith, right? And it was in April 1836. Does this sound familiar to you? This wilderness business? So let's talk about God's precedent for lost opportunity. Uh, I've talked to a number of people about this topic and they think, well, you know what? It, that's bad news. It can't be true. God would never do that. Why would he leave us hanging? Like, like, are you, do you really believe that he would cut his people off? And I'm like, yeah, open the scriptures. I mean, like, when has he not done that? When there's been rebelliousness and wickedness. So let's talk about Moses. Joseph Smith compared to Moses quite a bit. The president of the church, which is the president of the high priesthood, is to be as Moses. Um, and so let's talk about God's precedent for lost opportunity. Back to DNC 84. DNC 84, back to 1832. Remember, we already read part of this with the condemnation in DNC 84 a little bit earlier. Now, this Moses plainly taught unto the children of Israel in the wilderness. And he sought diligently to sanctify his people, that they might behold the face of God. What is Moses trying to do here? Who sees the face of God? Right? Zion is the, what's the definition of Zion? Zion is the what? The pure in heart? What do the Beatitudes say about the pure in heart? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, right? Moses here is trying to establish a Zionic covenant with his people. Those tablets he came down off the mountain with in the first hand, that was his DNC 42. That was his law to govern the church of Zion, the higher order. And of course, he came down and the people had rejected it. They didn't want it. They weren't faithful enough to live up to it. In fact, they got distracted with idols, false gods, pretension, right? Um, apparently, he snapped those tablets over his knee, threw them on the ground, broke them. Um, and then later, there was a lesser law, a preparatory gospel, right? So DNC 84 talks about this very concept. Now, this Moses plainly talked to the children of Israel in the wilderness and sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. In other words, he tried to establish Zion really hard among these people. Verse 24, but they hardened their hearts and could not endure his presence. Therefore, the Lord in his wrath, for his anger was kindled against them, swore that they should not enter into his rest while in the wilderness. Which rest is the fullness of his glory? They won't see the face of God. They won't have Zion. In fact, Zion's going to fall. And I'm sure the Lord took his name off of those Israelites for a time to chasten them, to smite them, to drive them out in the wilderness, that they can be chastened and repent and soften up, just like the Latter-day Saints. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, okay. Whoops, that was premature. Let me go back. So two more verses. Therefore, he took Moses out of their midst and the holy priesthood also. So prophet, he lets him go away. Priesthood, gone. You don't have it anymore. But, and the lesser priesthood continued, which priesthood holdeth the keys of the ministering of angels and the preparatory gospel. So he allowed a lesser law to continue, Right? Um, a telestial law, if you will, a preparatory gospel. That's all they had. 
But remember, they should. God said, you will not enter into my rest while you are in this wilderness. And remember what we just read a couple of scriptures ago, right? That these saints were in the wilderness of darkness. Similar thing happened. Okay. Let's see if I can speed up this computer here. Okay. So we are fast forwarding now to... Okay, so fast forward to March 1839. Let's talk about a description of this curse. Ready? This is going to be hard hitting for some of you. Buckle up. DNC 121, verses 16 through 19, and verse 21 also. Okay, let's get that not glitchy so we can read it together. All right. Now, who is the Lord talking about? in this prophecy, which people fit this description? Cursed are all those, there's that word cursed again, right? Cursed are all those that shall lift up their heel against mine anointed, saith the Lord, and cry they have sinned when they have not sinned before me. Okay, first clue. These are people that have said that Joseph Smith is guilty of certain things but he's not guilty of them. That's number one, right? Cry they have sinned when they have not sinned before me, saith the Lord, but have done that which was meet in my eyes and which I commanded them. But those who tr cry transgression do it because they are the servants of sin and are the children of disobedience themselves. And those who swear falsely against my servants, okay, false testimony, lies, deceit, secret combinations, and those who swear falsely against my servants, that they might bring them into bondage and death. Who were the key players responsible for turning in Joseph into bondage and death? Whoever is behind that strategy, and a lot of evidence points towards that not being done by the mob, at least not plotted and originated by them. The forensic and uh, ballistic analysis doesn't add up to John Taylor's or Will Willard Richards' accounts. Um, so there's foul play in this Carthage jail. So you guys can study that some other time. But remember, the Lord is talking specifically about these people, the only people who were with Hiram and Joseph the last minutes of his life. Whoever finished them off is in deep trouble. Okay. And I think of two guys that were there for sure. The rest are unknown. We don't know who they are. Supposedly, according to the, the story that's been disproven in so many ways. All right. Verse 18. Those who swear falsely against my servants, that they might bring them into bondage and death. Woe unto them, those people that just did that. Because they have offended my little ones. They shall be severed from the ordinances of my house. What is the ordinances we're talking about of his house? They will be severed from the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost. Done. You guys don't get it. I'm going to withdraw that from all of you guys. And in verse 21, later on, they say, the Lord says, they shall not have right to the priesthood. Whoops. Nor their posterity after them. Uh-oh. From generation to generation. Darn, right? 
So these people responsible for delivering Joseph and Hiram and the other servants up to bondage and death, the Lord says, I'm going to cut them off from the ordinances of my house. I'll let them make up whatever ordinances they want, but the true ordinances, they don't get them. They also will not have the right to the priesthood. Neither will their children or their posterity after them. So ask yourself a hard question. Who is the Lord talking about here? Someone in that picture looks pretty scared. Okay, back to the timeline. I'm sorry, it's a little bit choppy. Um, computer's working really hard to stream this right now, and so the PowerPoint um, takes a few seconds. Okay, so now we are back to 1841. We're up to 1841, I should say. Okay, January 1841. What have we? DNC 124, 28, and 34. For there is not a place found on the earth that he may come and to... Hold on. There's not a place on the earth yet. What happened to the Kirtland Temple? All right. So, for there is not a place found on the earth that he may come to and restore again that which was lost unto you or which he hath taken away even the fullness of the priesthood. January 1841, the Lord is saying, I don't have a, a place, you know, that's satisfactory to me. It's built in my name. I don't have a house. I don't have a people sanctified yet so that I can come and give to you the same thing I took away already. That which was lost unto you. You guys had it. You lost it. And I'm going to restore it again. That means a second time. You've already had it once. Restore again that which was lost unto you, or which he hath taken away, even the fullness of the priesthood. Are you telling me the saints didn't have the Melchizedek priesthood by 1841? That's what it says here. They lost it. For therein, within the house, are the keys of the holy priesthood ordained. Okay. All right, so while we wait for that, so far, why don't you guys write down any questions, comments, you know, anything on your minds right now. Go ahead and put them in the comments section, and we're going to chew through these at the end. I'll do my best to address all of them uh, the best I can. You know what? This is being too slow for this. I'm going to go back to the presentation and just play it safe, all right? But the scripture I wanted to tell you was in Third Nephi 16, verse 10. Remember, we just read, I'm going to pull it up on my phone. We just read that there's not a place for the Lord to restore again that which was lost unto the saints, even the fullness of the priesthood. 3 Nephi 16, verse 10. This is a prophecy by Jesus Christ to the Nephites. Talking about the future days, the Gentiles, when the Gentiles would have a chance at the fullness of the gospel. And thus commanded the Father that I should say unto you, at that day when the Gentiles shall sin against my gospel and shall reject the fullness of my gospel and shall be lifted up in the pride of their hearts above all nations and above all the people of the whole earth and shall be filled with all manner of lyings, of deceits, of mischiefs and all manner of hypocrisy and murders and priestcrafts and whoredoms and of secret abominations. If they shall do all these things and shall reject the fullness of my gospel, 
Behold, saith the Father, I will bring the fullness of my gospel from among them. Okay. So there we have proof that the fullness was taken from the Gentiles. Jesus said it way back in the Book of Mormon. DNC mentions it. Okay, so it looks like we're back. Um, I'm so sorry about that, that um, detraction there. My computer is really, really slow right now, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope I make it through the rest of this. All right, so back to DNC 124. Let's read a few more verses here. Um, DNC 124, 28, 31 through 32. Some of you guys have heard this. Um, but I command you, all ye my saints, to build a house unto me, and I grant unto you a sufficient time to build a house to me. And during this time, your baptism shall be acceptable unto me. But behold, at the end of this appointment, your baptisms for your dead shall not be acceptable unto me. And if you do not these things at the end of the appointment, ye shall be rejected as a church with your dead, saith the Lord your God. Okay, this is, again, up to August 1843 we are. Um, in 1841, the Lord said, there's no place for me to restore what I've rejected, which is the fullness. And now we're up to August 1843 for a couple more remarks as we wind this thing down. We've gone an hour and 15 minutes. I'm going to try to wrap it up in the next five minutes or so. One of the Facebook users says, do you consider condemnation to be the same thing as apostasy? Um, yes. For the most part, um, but there's different different ways to define that according to the scriptures. But yes, apostasy. Um, we are in apostasy as as the Latter Day Gentiles right now. We do not have the fullness um, as as a collective people. We don't. Now the Lord is working another reformation in the future, and there's plenty of prophecies about that. Um, Okay, so this is August 27th, 1843, and I'm going to go through these pretty quick. This is a quote from Joseph Smith when he's saying, Go to and finish the temple, and God will fill it with his power, and you will then receive more knowledge concerning this priesthood, which implies you don't have it right now, right? He's talking about the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is done by an oath and a covenant. Not a broken one, a fulfilled covenant. So he's basically saying, um, this is all you guys have right now. But if you finish this temple, you might have a chance at some more. And then here he says that Abraham's patriarchal power is the greatest yet experienced in this church. Okay, so the Melchizedek priesthood, he is saying, is not in this church. At least being experienced yet, or at this point in the church. Um, perhaps they had it at an earlier time, but it was taken away, but this confirms Joseph Smith in 1843 was talking about this. You guys need to go finish this temple. Then the Lord can teach you and give you higher, higher learnings and endow you with power, fill you with the um, fullness of the priesthood. Um, yeah, so let me see. Here's another quote from Orson Pratt. Okay, last few quotes. We're going to finish it up. And I may have to do another part two on this in the, in the future. Let me see um, how well this goes as far as Q&A. If, if we can cover the gist of it, the, most of the story during the Q&A, um, I might just leave this here. I'll say Orson Pratt in September 1843 says, and I'm just going to read the highlighted parts, right? 
I will speak of some of the consequences that will follow if we do not obey. Finishing the temple. When the temple is reared, God will manifest himself in a peculiar manner. If we are obedient, he has told us he will make manifest to us things we are now ignorant of. He has said he will reveal things which pertain to this dispensation that have been hidden and kept secret from the foundation of the world. He declares in his revelations the consequences of not building the house unto his name within such a time. The Lord says, if you build the house in that time, you shall be blessed. But if not, you shall be rejected as a church with your dead, saith the Lord. So if that house is not built, then in vain are all our cares. Our faith and works, our meetings and hopes are vain also. Our performances and acts will be void. And that's right out of our own church history. Okay. All right. Lyman White also said, um, he recounts the story, you know, that we were supposed to build a, a house or a temple to the most high God. We were to have sufficient time to build that house during which time our baptisms for our dead should be acceptable in the river. This is DNC 124 he's talking about. If we did not build within this time, we were to be rejected as a church. We and our dead together. Both the temple and baptizing went very leisurely. Surprised. Um, slothful. And we, until the temple was somewhere in building the second story, when Brother Joseph from the stand announced the alarming declaration that baptism for our dead was no longer acceptable in the river. As much to say the time for building the temple had passed by, and both we and our dead were rejected together showing to us much plainer than language could tell that the church was rejected if the head was taken from it the church now stands rejected together with their dead the church being rejected now stands alienated from her god in every sense of the word and there we have it there's the story and so a lot of people get into the peculiars and the details about well if only so-and-so would have succeeded Joseph, you know, if only Sidney Rigdon would have had it or James Strang or whoever, you know, um, it, and this really, I'm trying to show you tonight that this really isn't a matter of succession. It's not. The church was condemned early on. It was cursed. The Lord removed his name from the church. He rejected it with their dead eventually after giving them several opportunities to come back to repent and return unto him. You know, the Lord gave many, many, many chances for these Latter-day Saints to do it right and to live the law of Zion. But in the end, most of them just didn't want it. They rejected it. And so we have prophecies in our day, about our day, where the Lord will bring again Zion. And let me see if I can share a few more scriptures here towards the end. Um, now, like I said earlier, that this article that I wrote last September is highly, highly detailed. 
and it has a lot more sources than what we shared tonight. And so um, I'm going to share with you what modern leaders have said about the subject, because I get people telling me and other people all the time, yeah, no, you're, it's not condemned. It's not rejected. It's not, you know, the Lord never changed it. He switched it back to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Go check Dustin Grady's article about that. It was never changed back to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Joseph's time. Brigham Young, when he came to Utah in 18, late 1849s, 1851, I think it was, he incorporated a brand new church called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with a dash between latter and days. And then he rebaptized everybody. It's a brand new church. It's not a continuation. And so um, what we have is the question of, do some of the modern Restoration Branch church members, do they know about what's going on? And I'm going to find you some quotes from modern, uh, modern leaders. Well, in just a minute, you know, Brigham Young, if he re really was for example, uh, a successor to Joseph and had the keys and the spiritual gifts. If he was a prophet, seer, and a revelator. Um, sorry about that. I know this is a little bit clunky. This is what Brigham Young said. You think they'd be ultimately certain about what kind of fruits they could bear if they were a true continuation from Joseph and had all the same keys and gifts passed along. Um, you know, August 1844, he said, you're now without a prophet present with you to guide you in the flesh, but you are not without apostles. He makes a difference there between apostles and prophets, which is interesting. Nowadays, we call them the same thing, right? Um, April 7th, 1852, Journal of Discourses. A person was mentioned today, this is Brigham Young, a person was mentioned today who did not believe Brigham Young was a prophet, seer, and a revelator. I wish to ask every member of this whole community if they ever heard him profess to be a prophet, seer, and revelator, as Joseph Smith was. Who ordained me to be first president of the church on earth? I answer, it is the choice of this people, and that is sufficient. Oh, okay. So he says it's sufficient to just have a vote. Um, what does Article of Faith number five say? We believe that men should be called of God by revelation. Right? And by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority. Um, so in April 6th, 1853, um, Journal of Discourses, Brigham Young says, Now will it cause some of you to marvel that I was not ordained a high priest before I was ordained an apostle? Brother Kimball and myself were never ordained high priests. All right. Well, he assumed that him being ordained an apostle automatically gave him the high priesthood. It didn't. Um, those people who received the, the high priesthood were from a different different calling altogether. Um, so that poses a problem. DNC 107 says that the head of the church is the head of the high priesthood. You have to, you have to be a high priest to be president of the church. And so here you've got Brigham Young admitting that he's never had that ordination to high priesthood. Okay. In 1857, you have Brigham Young saying, I am going to interpret, I'm not going to interpret dreams. I don't profess to be such a prophet as were Joseph Smith and Daniel, but I am a Yankee guesser. The brethren testify that brother Brigham Young is brother Joseph's legal successor. You never heard me say so. This is what Brigham Young is saying. You think you would go for this one. You never heard me say so. 
I say that I am a good hand to keep the dogs and wolves out of the flock. Another one from Brigham Young. He says, I have never particularly desired any man to testify publicly that I am a prophet. Nevertheless, if any man feels joy in doing this, he shall be blessed in it. I have never said that I am not a prophet. But if I am not, one thing is certain. I have been very profitable to this people. A little pun there. Um, Heber C. Kimball, right? He said this a few times. I do not profess to be a prophet. I never called myself. But I actually believe I am because people are all the time telling me that I am. <laughs> a bunch of people sustain you as a prophet. I guess, I guess you're a prophet, right? That's what Heber C. Kimball's thinking, right? He doesn't believe that he is, you know? He doesn't profess to be one, but he believes that he is because people are coming up to him and saying that he is. Um, let's see. Orson Pratt says that, uh, let's see. Let's go to the bold section down there. Orson Pratt is saying in 1878, so this is a long ways later, he had plenty of time with the Formula 12, Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wolford Woodruff, all of these guys he spent plenty of time with by this point. Let's see. We are presented before the church and sustained as prophets, seers, and revelators, Orson Pratt says. And we have received oft times the gift of prophecy and revelation and have received many great and glorious gifts. But have we received the fullness of the blessings to which we're entitled? No, we have not. Who among the apostles have become seers and enjoy all the gifts and powers pertaining to that calling? He's like, who among us? The Quorum of the Twelve have actually become seers or prophets. And he says, back to the quote, now I don't think many of us have attained to these gifts. Well, that's interesting, right? But it's not the fault of the Almighty, but it is the fault, but the fault is in ourselves. And he says, I have not attained to these things later on. Okay, so um, let me find a few more. I'm going to skip Joseph F. Smith's Reed Smoot Congressional Hearings, where he admits that uh, I have never pretended, nor do I profess to have received revelations. Wow. From the president of the church. Um, so we can ask ourselves. What do the leaders today by their fruits, you shall know them, right? So let's take a look at this. It's choking through. All right, so let me refresh this page. This is a diagram, and I received this from um, a, a book that I ordered that was from Measuring Doctrine. You know, he has a reformatted scripture. So this is a screenshot of one of the pages at the beginning where he puts together... Um, all of the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, our 2013 edition that's used in the Utah LDS Church. Take a look at this, the revelations. You had 70 years, basically, from shortly after Joseph Smith died up until, uh, who knows when that was, 19-something. Uh, but anyway, it's been 103 years at least since any of that stuff's been canonized in any sort of format that would represent, thus saith the Lord, or here's a revelation of what God speaks. Um, 
and again, Dustin talked about this last night, how that's the, that's one of the things that you test with these prophets is what's the Lord saying today? Share with us what the Lord, the Lord's burden with you, right? Share with us what the Lord is saying. And, uh, some would argue that these conference talks are good enough, but, um, Joseph Smith never had a teleprompter and he cranked out tons of, of actual revelations. Okay. So here's the point that we're going to end on today. Most people, when they hear this stuff, it's really hard to understand, right? They want to know, well, what, yeah, but that's all great. What does it mean for us right now in our day? And I'm going to refresh the screen once. So then we're going to hit up a bunch of quotes about modern church leaders more recently and what they've said. Heber C. Kimball. And this was, uh, he's not quite modern, but 1866. The works of the Lord, the words of the Lord to the church through the prophet Joseph Smith, September 1832, will apply very well to many now. He's saying the condemnation is still here, 1866. Ezra Taft Benson. And finally, in 1987, in a temple meeting for general authorities while he was president of the church. Um, here's that quote um, from Ezra Taft Benson, president Ezra Taft Benson. This condemnation has not been lifted, nor will it be until we repent. That's a true statement. Um, okay, so fast forward. You know, Ezra Taft Benson, ah, he, he lived a long time ago. What does he know now about the condition of the LDS church, right? And the branches, the restoration branches. So, Dallin H. Oaks is on record as a more member of the Quorum of the Twelve in 1993 saying, I believe that it was the neglect and treating lightly of this subject that brought the early church under condemnation. I believe it is the neglect of this subject that has continued the condemnation in our own day. For you guys who disbelieve what I just taught you and showed you out of the scriptures that the church is under condemnation today, why don't you explain to me why one of the Quorum of the Twelve who is now a member of the first presidency is saying that this same condemnation has continued in our day today. His words, not mine. Oh, Russell M. Nelson knows about it too. Listen to this. All right. So he's called in to meet with Ezra Taft Benson when he's a, a member of the 12, right? And he says in the highlighted portion. So Benson's explaining to him the condemnation earlier. By that time, this is Russell M. Nelson saying, by that time, President Benson had completely captured my attention. Oh, this is interesting to him. He then concluded his admonition, and they shall remain under this condemnation until they repent and remember the new covenant, even the Book of Mormon. And then says Russell M. Nelson, I shall never forget that lesson. So he probably still remembers it today. He said he'd never forget. So, right? so Russell M. Nelson's aware of this. So is Dallin H. Oaks. Uh, Ezra Tuck Benson certainly was. So why is it that the Latter-day Saints resist this principle that the Lord clearly condemned the Church of Christ to the point to where he took his name from it and said, I'm going to do a reformation one day among you guys. And we talk all the time about the future prophecies of the redemption of Zion. Zion will be redeemed. Well, how do you, how do you redeem Zion if it's not fallen? And if you're saying to me that Zion is not fallen, that this stuff never happened, that I'm off my rocker, that some, I'm, I'm some apostate trying to stir up trouble, shame on you. You don't redeem something that hasn't fallen or that doesn't need redemption, right? 
Where's Zion today? Where's the New Jerusalem? If it's still here, show it to me. Who's living DNC 42? Uh, who's the steward over entire properties and land parcels being dished out to the poor and the families according to their needs? Where's that found in the LDS church or any of the branches? You know, some of you try, but you fail miserably. That's because you're not authorized to do it. Zion will be redeemed in the last days, but it'll be done through power. Zion must needs be redeemed by power. It's not going to come by a bunch of fruitcakes going up in the hills and doing communes together. It's going to come through the Lord's anointed servant coming back, according to Jacob 5, one last time for a final harvest. His job, it will be to set in order the house of God and to do a reformation among them. So in the time being, what we need to focus on is the doctrine of Christ. You've heard us say it. We have websites. We have podcasts called it. There's a reason why we picked that title and why 30, 40, 50 people in this community are banding together and saying, no more. We are going to teach the doctrine of Christ every chance we get, two, three times a week. We're going to write blog posts. We're going to push this out here. We're going to meet together. We're going to have cottage meetings. We're going to go proselyte to people. We're going to teach anybody who wants to be put back onto the path of Jesus Christ, which is repentance, full baptism, and coming unto him and enduring in faith to the end. That's how salvation and eternal life is gained. But the Lord gives you help. He's willing to give you a remission of sins and baptism by fire if you will repent and come unto him. And I beg everybody that's listening to this right now, get over the differences in your opinions versus mine about whether or not this stuff happened. Look, I just showed you 90-something references, right? Um, it happened. Get over it. But there's good news. We can do something about it if we choose to. If we care, we would be going to the Lord and begging for his mercy and his forgiveness and ask him if we can be part of his church and that we can be ready for the reformation when it comes and that whatever happens in his kingdom, Zion's in the future. We know this. We know about a millennium. We know Jesus is coming back. All of us are like virgins waiting for Jesus to come. The question becomes, who among us in this group will have the faith to call upon God and to be found with oil in their lamps? Oil is symbolic of the Holy Ghost. Will we receive the baptism of fire in the Holy Ghost? Will we repent sufficiently? Will we, we humble ourselves, right? Will we come unto Christ and live the covenant that he said condemnation came upon the church in 1832 because they took the new and everlasting covenant in the book of Mormon lightly. They just said it, but they didn't do it. They claimed they had it, but they didn't. And that covenant found in the book of Mormon is found in third Nephi chapter nine. Um, Dustin Grady, can you put those verses up on the screen for me? Third Nephi chapter nine, the covenant is in there. God says, I don't want any of more of your weird offerings, all right? None of the stuff I asked for anymore. No more of these sacrifices and all. Here's what I want from now on. I want your heart. I want a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And then if you come to me with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy before God and no deception before God, you can't fool him. We just saw people try to fool him. Not having it, he condemned them, right? And he'll condemn us if we try to shortcut our way back to God. So in this verse, it says that those people who offer the broken heart and contrite spirit, they will be baptized by fire in the Holy Ghost. And those people who receive a remission of sins and are born of God, they become his seed, children of Christ, his fruit, 
the fruit of his loins, technically. Um, and so we have this offer, you know, the Lord, even in future times, he's saying, how often would I have gathered you? You know, if you would have just repent and come unto me, I'm still willing to show mercy to you. And so even though to some, and certainly to me at the beginning, this was, this was bad news, hard pill to swallow, but I'm going to make you a promise. If you're faithful and centered on Christ, you'll digest this. It'll be okay because you'll start to see the beauty of it and the opportunity ahead of us to prepare ourselves for something far greater than any of the churches of the restoration branches could ever offer us. And that's my testimony to you is that great things are coming. Buckle up, repent, get on the Lord's rock solidly and stay there. You get converted to the Lord and you stay there and you teach as many people as you can to come unto him. You invite people to whatever you can where the spirit and the power of the Holy ghost are present when the scriptures are being explored accurately. Um, and I leave that testimony with you that these things are real. This stuff really happened way back when, but we have the opportunity ahead of us for something mighty and great. So muster up your faith and be ready for it and call upon the Lord starting tonight. If you need to and ask him to enter into that covenant and be willing to do whatever he asks of you, follow his commandments because when all men follow the commandments, that's when Zion will look down right from heaven and the earth will look up the people on the earth will look towards heaven high heaven will look down city of enoch will come back they're going to show us how to build this city the right way those are the the helpers that go with the the servant in the last days you know to do it right so anyway that's enough um i leave that testimony with you um as well as a witness that this stuff that i talked about um is readily available in the scriptures it's true um, and like i said this is the best i understand it I'm still figuring this stuff out every week. And so if I missed something or I got something wrong, hit me up in the comments. Let's talk about it openly. Um, I'm happy to recant anything I said that was incorrect, but just let me know. And anyway, you guys have been great. Thanks so much. Um, and I, I bear this witness to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. So let us, um, let us do questions and answers. And I'm going to need some help from Dustin for teeing this stuff up. I see 92 comments. Um, okay, so this is from Peter Brown. He's saying, I commented on Facebook, but I wonder about the need for a place in order to restore the fullness of the priesthood. Um, great question. I don't know if it comes down to a place or not. You know, the more I study this topic, Peter, the more I believe that the house that was to be built was not about a physical temple per se, but more about the symbology of them building a people for the Lord, a place for the, the, the Lord to come down to his people and dwell among them, dwell within them. I think there could be some symbolism there that the house was simply a symbol of them purifying themselves so that the Holy spirit can come in. Right. Uh, I think temples are symbolic of human beings. And so when the Lord says stuff like my house, um, in this particular instance, he's referring to a building in 124, of course. But when he says, my house, when he sends the servant back and says, gather out the strength of my house, he's not grabbing like the strongest bricks out of that temple. You know, he, th those are people. And his house is a group of people that he's that he's going to. So um, <laughs> those are just some thoughts on it. I don't know if I have an exact answer for you, Peter, but good question.
I'd love to hear your thoughts at some point too. Um, this is from Quinn and Natasha Easton. If condemnation rests on all, then what can be done to remove the condemnation? Um, I'll tell you what. Let's see. Let me see if I can pull up my screen real quick. So I discovered that, well, I'll just give it to you. So in DNC 35, somewhere near the end, I think it's verse 25 maybe, it says that, um, you know, when men will obey all the commandments and when they will repent sufficiently and return to me, something to that effect, it says that the... Um, that they will no, no longer be confounded. That's what our scriptures say today, no longer confounded. But in the 1835 edition, confounded was changed to condemned. They will be no longer condemned. And I think personally, as well as collectively, the rules are the same. If you repent and come unto the Lord with full purpose of heart and obey his commandments, um, you know, I think individuals can be removed of that collective condemnation but they're going to have to, to follow the same law that they were expected to follow back then to some degree, which is just obedience and faith. Thanks, Quinn. Let's talk more about it um, next time we meet up. Okay, this is from Elijah Rich. This is interesting presentation, presented material, interesting pre, interestingly presented material. It's very similar most of the anti-Mormon literature out there. Quotes and excerpts, but presented in a light that is the wit of man but deny the power of God. Okay. Um, thanks, Elijah. Good point. Uh, you know, I showed you 29 scriptures. Which of those do you disagree with? So which of those scriptures do you have a problem with? Um, let us know in the comments which of those scriptures was wrong. We can, uh, and I'm happy to address those with the crowd. Is, uh, this is Quinn again. Um, is the Utah LDS Church authorized to perform any particular work if they are indeed in a condemned state? Um, not too sure. I, I do know that, you know, in Moses's case, the lesser priesthood continued and there was a preparatory gospel and they, you know, the, the fallen people back then in Israel had, they still had ordinances and, and things and, and some authority to do some basic things, faith, repentance, baptism by water. I like to think that today, a lot of the restoration branches still have that lesser priesthood. Um, However, they don't have the ability to, to administer in the Melchizedek priesthood, which is obvious by their fruits. Uh, Brendan, so Joseph Smith was taken as part of that condemnation. So the parallel drawn in DNC 84, you'll have to decide what that means to you. Uh, you know, ask the Lord or study it out. Um, but the parallel is there between Moses and Joseph a lot, especially in DNC 84. It's pretty thick. And so we do know that the priesthood was taken. And we do know that Moses was taken back then, as well as the priesthood. And so here we have the priesthood being taken in Joseph Smith's day. Um, so, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe, you know, Moses lived after the priesthood was taken from them. Moses continued to hang around for a little while, you know, until he was taken up. So I don't know exactly if that was part of that formula directly, but the parallels are certainly suggesting that something very similar happened between Moses and Joseph and the reasons why we're similar. So do the current GAs know this? <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I, don't, I don't know all of their thoughts, what they know, what they don't. I would imagine many of the people who 
who would claim to be prophets, seers, and revelators today, and who are sustained such, they probably they're probably pretty aware that they're that they're not. I mean, you would know if you were one. I, I don't know why it's a mystery to some. Um, I don't know. That's a great question, Miriam. A Facebook user, if Enoch didn't need help since he was one with God in building up his city, then why the assumption that the servant will need help when he too will be one with God? Um, I don't know. I'm just reporting what's said in the scriptures. Um, you know, Jacob five, he's going down the same servants going down this time. He's bringing other laborers with him. I don't know. I'm just, um, I'm just telling you what I'm reading in the scriptures. God's problem. All right. These are good. Thanks so much for these questions. Are there any others? Matt Spencer says, have we really been born in the covenant? My ancestors baptized by Heber C seeing how vital baptism by fire is. Uh, I don't know what born in the covenant even means. Honestly, I mean, a covenant, an everlasting covenant is something that all of us have to make with God. You're not born into it. That's silly. Um, I don't see any proof or any, any context to the idea of being born in the covenant, except later on, you know, uh, the Utah LDS church, um, they kind of made that a thing later on in the 1860s and seventies, but I'm not sure where that exists as a, as a concept. The gospel has to be followed by, by all people, you know, you either follow it or you don't. That's how I see it. Could be wrong. Okay, good. What else? Thanks, Matt. Appreciate the comment. Elijah Rich. I agree with them all. Um, Okay, cool. So this is a follow-up from what I asked him. Like, which scriptures do you think are taken out of context or misrepresented here? Um, I agree with them all. There's nothing wrong with the scriptures presented. It's the interpretation of what they mean in context. There are a lot of drawn conclusions between what was written. Uh, yeah, of course there are. Um, we have to use our minds to put together some of these puzzle pieces for sure. And like I said at the very beginning, Elijah, I, I made a disclaimer that I'm learning as I go. I don't claim to be the world's best authority on this subject, but I'm just presenting the material as far as I know it. So, um, you know, hit, hit me up on Facebook, Mark Curtis. Um, you can find me on the Doctrine of Christ website. Um, fill out a comment there on the About Us page or the Contact Us page. Um, I would love to hear, you know, what you know about the subject and see what uh, see what else I can learn from you. Maybe I missed the earlier comments, says Joshua Sorensen, but Enoch did have help. Uh, yeah, I, I think Enoch had a ton of help. Everybody in that city who was sanctified was probably doing the labor, I would imagine. They're not sitting around on clouds playing harps. Um, Dobie, 1977. In spite of the technical difficulties, the content was amazing. Thank you very much. Um, we'll have to take it to the Lord, but it's all interesting to think about. Good. That's That's all we're hoping for is that people just start thinking about these things um, maybe in a different light, a different interpretation. And ultimately, yeah, if any of you lack wisdom, ask God, right? He can, he can show you this stuff way better than any presenter could. So that's a good, good attitude to have. And I hope that all of us would, would be serious about this enough to ask the Lord for help understanding it. Eliza Rich is back. He says, totally agree. Um, I think it's awesome. You're presenting your thoughts. Hey, thanks so much. Um, 
but yeah, help us figure this out because this is a giant puzzle. And I only showed you about 20 or 30 of the random pieces, but it's enough to know that the general landscape of what was taught earlier was, um, there was a theme to it and it was condemnation, you know? Um, I wish it weren't. But. Okay, someone from Facebook is saying, I appreciated this presentation, especially the timeline. <clears throat> I also agree Enoch did have help and there will be so again. Enoch did have help and there will be so again, yeah. Um, I mean, Zion is, is definitely a collective communal effort. Yeah, you may have a leader who helps establish it or lay the foundation or finish it, um, but you know everybody who who builds that city and is, is involved there will be heavily, heavily involved in the work of the Lord. Peter Brown, I like this format better than Zoom. Keep it going. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. We'll we'll try to iron out some of the bandwidth issues with my computer and stuff like that. We'll try to simplify simplify some of our files that we share and the screen sharing so that it's less clunky. So thanks for your patience. Um, subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't already, if you want updates. Um, and then we also have a Facebook page, Doctrine of Christ. Um, and you can go there and you can get the up-to-date articles that we publish. Um, the, the event calendar is there. So every time we schedule one of these things with a topic, that's the first place you're going to see these things. So if you want to see more of these in the future, um, Share them with your friends. If you have any friends that are interested in learning from what the scriptures say the best we can, you know, and, and come what may as far as what it means for us, um, that'd be great. We appreciate all the help that we can get for, for sharing these things and, and helping people understand this stuff. Okay. Are there any more comments or questions before we, before we sign off for tonight? Okay. This one's from Malia Bond. Do you believe the Church of Christ can be an individual or a family completely disconnected from others? Uh, that's a tough one. Um, yeah, I don't know that there's a, a formal organization to the Church of Christ. I do believe that people who are repentant and who receive the remission of sins and the full baptism, they can become part of the family of Christ, which is the Church of Christ. It's his family, um, his sons and daughters. And so... Um, I tend to believe that, yes, that can be done individually. And if every member of your family has, you know, has entered into that covenant successfully, I, I don't see why not. Yes, whole families could probably be part of the Church of Christ. But then again, Malia, I'm just guessing, you know. Um, but I do believe in the, the simplified version of what his church actually is. And that's those people who receive a remission of sins and come into him. Dustin, how are we looking? Any more comments or questions or time to wrap up? Um, uh, not seeing any more questions right now. Okay, cool. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. We're going to sign off then, and we'll see you next week on a few more of these. But during the week, you know, reach out to us. We'll try to answer the rest of your comments on Facebook and YouTube best we can. Thank you so much. And um, we'll, uh, we'll sign off here. Thanks, everybody. Bye.